Welcome back to Unprecedential, an AEI podcast on American constitutionalism. I'm Adam White. On April 29, AEI hosted a book event featuring Judge Jed Rakoff. He's a trial judge in the federal court in Manhattan. For years, he's been writing a series of essays for the New York Review of Books, focusing on various aspects of the American criminal justice system. Now he's brought those themes together in a recent book titled, Why the Innocent Plead Guilty and the Guilty Go Free and Other Paradoxes of Our Broken Legal System. In this event, I interviewed the judge about his book and we had some opening remarks from AEI's president, Robert Doerr. It was an interesting conversation, at least I thought so, covered a lot of ground. So we thought you might appreciate it as an episode of this podcast. I hope you do. Thanks as always for joining us. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Robert Doerr, the president of AI, and I'm very happy to be able to introduce today's conversation between AI scholar Adam White and United States District Court Judge Jed Rakoff. I'm especially pleased to introduce today's discussion of Judge Rakoff's new book, Why the Innocent Plead Guilty and the Guilty Go Free and Other Paradoxes of Our Broken Legal System. Criminal justice reform is one of our country's most pressing public policy issues, and it cuts across familiar ideological and political lines and requires that we think hard about core values like justice, fairness, and law. And while it's true that I don't often uh, introduce every book discussion we have at AI, I wanted to be here for this one today for three reasons. Judge Rakoff distinguishes um, himself in three ways. One, he's a federal district court judge, and we are very honored to have him in our community today. The second is he's a New Yorker, and as many of you know, I'm, I'm partial to New Yorkers here at AI, based in Washington. And then third, and most of all, Judge Rakoff's commentary and writing and decisions have been some of the most creative and insightful and challenging to all of us to think anew about very hard challenges our country faces. So it's a real pleasure to have him with us here today. He's a special participant in the public debate of these issues, and we're honored to have him with us this afternoon. Now, he will be joined in his conversation today by Adam White. Adam is a resident scholar here at AI who also serves as assistant professor of law at the Otinian Scalia Law School at George Mason University. Since joining AI, Adam has played a leading role in expanding our work on law and the administrative state. He's also helped spearhead our new Center for American Constitutional Government, which features great programming like today's events. So without any further delay, Judge Rakoff, Adam, take it away. Well, thanks, Robert, and welcome everyone to a conversation on the state of American criminal justice possible paths for reform. As Robert mentioned, uh, our conversation centers around a new book, Why the Innocent Plead Guilty and the Guilty Go Free and Other Paradoxes of Our Broken Legal System. The author is our guest today, Judge Jed Rakoff of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. Judge Rakoff, welcome. So thank you so much for inviting me, but that introduction by Mr. Doerr was so overwhelming that I don't think I could live up to it. So I'm going to just sign off now, but it was nice meeting you. Well, I hope we can keep you for just a few more minutes because uh, this is a fascinating and challenging book and I'm looking forward to discussing it. I just want to say for the sake of our audience, just so they know if they haven't already read your biography, your book, your work altogether is informed uh, by your experience in many parts of this system. Of course, after your appointment to the district court in 1996 as a judge, 
But also before that, Judge Rakoff served as a federal prosecutor and as a criminal defense attorney. And in recent years, he's been writing on legal reform in a series of widely discussed essays for the New York Review of Books, which provided the, or which provided the basis for this book. Maybe that's a good place to start, Judge. Uh, when and why did you begin to write these essays? So when I first went on the bench, I thought it might be a little unseemly for a judge to be speaking out on issues, even if they involved the due administration of justice and what was going on in the courts, because judges you know, have to maintain neutrality and, and it's important to have the confidence of the public. But what I saw was ever more disturbing to me, both in my own court and in the courts of my colleagues and in courts around the country. So I went back in 2014 and looked at the code of conduct, which governs uh, all, I was going to say all federal judges, but actually it doesn't apply to the Supreme Court, but they're above ethics, but they governs the rest of us. And I noticed that one of the canons there said in the letter of the law that it was permissible for a judge to speak out on issues involving the due administration of justice. And then in the commentary, it actually encourages judges to speak out on uh, issues of the due administration of justice, because after all, we are participants in that. We see it every day. We're in a, in a position to uh, perhaps give some informed opinions. So I wrote my first article then, and after that, I was hooked. And so now I've written a book. I, and I noticed you dedicated that book to Robert Silvers, the, the, the late editor of the New York Review of Books. Yes. Well, when I submitted my first article, I submitted it cold, and he was kind enough to not only say we were going to publish it, but invite me to write some more. And the New York Review of Books has always been my favorite left-wing rag, so the, it, it was just a total, total love at first sight. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, let's move to the substance of the book. And before I do, I just want to remind our audience that they can submit questions. We'd love to hear from them. Judge, you opened the book with a chapter on, as you, as you title it, The Scourge of Mass Incarceration. Now, of course, incarceration is, 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 needless to say, not a new function of government. It's one of the oldest functions of government. Countries, lots of countries put many people in prison. What, what constitutes mass incarceration, and, and how did the United States arrive at this point? So I'm sorry to report that the United States is by far the world's leader in incarceration. We have 5% of the world's population. We have 25% of all the people who are in prison. We, China, Russia, they are nothing compared to us. And, and this all came about as a result of laws that were passed in the um, 70s, 80s, and 90s when crime rates were going up in the United States and the, the legislatures somewhat understandably re reacted with what may now seem like very harsh laws with mandatory minimums and career offenders, three strikes and you're out and other provisions like that. And that led by the year 2000 to 2 million people being in our jails and prisons. And that has remained constant virtually every year since then. And it is, it, it is by far the greatest of any country in the world, both on an absolute terms and in per capita terms. The 
what's worse or equally bad is there's a racial aspect to this. 40% of the 2 million are black males between the ages of 18 and 34. Another 20% are Hispanic males of those same ages. And that means that entire neighborhoods are being stripped of their young men at a critical time in their lives, in their families' lives, in their communities' lives. And it's had, in my view, devastating effects. Now, Judge, early on in your discussion of mass incarceration, you grapple with the numbers. You point out that prison populations have gone up even as crime rates have gone down. Now, I have to say a lot of your readers and, and my initial instinct when I got to that was to say, well, wait a second, maybe crime is going down because incarceration is going up. But you parse through the numbers and, and talk about the sort of the difficulty in drawing causal relationships between those things. But what would you say to, to a reader who, who reading that chapter would say, well, Judge, it's because incarceration has gone up that we have safer cities? So, I mean, that's a natural conclusion for someone to reach, but it's not borne out. There have been a lot of studies done of this. Now, it's a difficult thing to study. And the result is that the studies are somewhat over, all over the lot. And they tend to, frankly, vary with the ideology of who's doing the study. So conservative studies have said that the crime rate was more attributable to incarceration than liberal studies have done. But virtually all those studies agree that it's not the main reason for the drop in crime. The highest is one study by a, a conservative economist that puts it at 35%. The lowest is by uh, a liberal think tank that puts it at 1%. So there is a huge range. But they, everyone, including the people who put it at a high level, agree that there are other factors that have played an even bigger role. For example, just to give an obvious one, surveillance cameras. We've had a huge increase over the last 20, 30 years in the number of surveillance cameras in stores, in neighborhoods, in buildings, and so forth. And that's had an obvious and important effect in decreasing crime. And so to attribute it to these laws, I think, is not warranted. In addition, the crime rates have dropped every year since 1996 to levels that are lower than we've seen since the early 60s. There's been a little blimp blip this year in violent crimes attributable, I think, to the pandemic. Uh, but even this year, 2020, the property crimes continue to drop. And yet our incarceration rate has remained right up there at 2 million people. So we are locking up ever more people for longer, an ever greater percentage of the accused for, for longer and longer. And to my mind, that makes no sense. Now, some of the, the causes of, of the increase in prison populations, uh, you discuss later in the book, and we'll get to those in terms of the, 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 the process of criminal trials to the extent that there are trials anymore, plea bargaining uh, system and, and so on. But in that opening essay on mass incarceration, you encourage district judges to speak up. You say, speak, um, unless we judges make more effort to speak out against this humanity, how can we call ourselves instruments of justice? But in addition to asking that question, you do point out that there are some judges who are trying to take a stand on these. And I guess my question is, what can judges do in the process of 
of sentencing and, and the oversight of trials that actually do happen that might help to lo- lower the or, or decrease this problem of mass incarceration? Because so many of these laws set mandatory minimums and uh, other such binding requirements, the exercise of judicial discretion is much less in this area than it was 50 years ago. And indeed, that's another, in my view, uh, mistake. Judges historically have been the people who are in the, the most neutral position to determine what's the appropriate sentence. Now it's being... Uh, determined in many cases by the legislature, which knows nothing about any individual defendant. They just think, hey, that's a bad crime. We're going to force judges to send this guy away for years and years. Nevertheless, there are several things judges can do. The first thing they can do is speak out against mandatory minimums and career offender statutes. The second thing they can do is within the limits that are still available to them for the exercise of discretion, point out that if they had their druthers, they would have even sentenced the person below the mandatory minimum. My former colleague, John Martin, who was a judge, first was U.S. attorney, the chief prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, and then a judge on my court, resigned because, as he said, he found these mandatory minimums so unjust in so many cases that he couldn't bring himself to be party to them. Um, I think most judges are not quite ready to go that far, but I think we could be much more vocal in letting Congress, the state legislators, and the public know just how overly harsh these uh, laws are. Maybe maybe stay on this point for just a moment because your reference to Congress is interesting. I mean, it is true that Congress, when they pass a law, they don't know the the specific injustices that might occur in a, in a given case. But in some ways, isn't that an advantage? If they're sort of at a distance and not seeing up close every specific case, they might be able to draft laws more neutrally with an eye to the big picture and then leave the, the sort of the individual decisions to, to prosecutors and to judges. What's wrong with Congress sort of taking the lead on these things? Well, first of all, when Congress sets the penalty, Congress, of course, determines what is or is not a crime. But when Mm -hmm. Congress sets the penalty, they're only seeing one side of the coin. They're getting no contact with the individuals. There are many, many studies that show that when juries... Uh, first hear about a crime that someone is charged with, they want to throw the book at them. But after they've gone through a trial, they, if they were sentencing the person, they would give even a lower sentence than most judges would, because now they know there's a human being involved and that there are many other factors that enter into sentencing than the fact that he sold three ounces of crack cocaine. So Congress doesn't have that perspective at all. They have a very one-sided view, and the public as a whole. When you read about a crime in the newspaper, of course, we're always outraged. But when we know more about the situation, we see we have a more nuanced view. And that is the view that historically was given to judges to work out, but no longer is in many, many cases. Judge, the, the title of your book, obviously, is, is very 
thought-provoking, it's very provocative in general, it begins why the innocent plead guilty. And, and that's the second subject you focus on your book, all the sort of systemic reasons why innocent people might plead guilty to crimes that they didn't commit. I mean, it's a, sort of, it's a very hard thing to, for me to wrap my head around. And we have a system that was framed to err on the side of liberty. When I was in law school, uh, Professor Dershowitz drilled into my head the old line that uh, better for 10 guilty uh, men to go free than one innocent person to, to be wrongly convicted. And so I learned that the system was supposed to err on the side of, of preserving liberty. Yet your book details many, many ways in which that doesn't work and reasons why, as you put it, the, the innocent plead guilty. So could you maybe describe that for our audience? Yes. And I, like you, I began with the assumption that this would never really happen. In fact, I thought uh, even if they went to trial, innocent people would never be convicted because of all the protections we have, proof beyond a reasonable doubt, presumption of innocence, Fifth Amendment right to silence, and so forth. The great eye-opener in this respect was the Innocence Project, which beginning about 15, 20 years ago, used DNA to exonerate people who had been previously convicted often of the most serious crimes like murder and rape. And it found that there were hundreds of people who had been totally wrongfully convicted. Of those that the Innocence Project has exonerated, 10% pled guilty to the crimes they had nothing to do with. And there's a, a larger measure, which is something called the National Registry of Exonerations, which catalogs all cases that where there's been exoneration by a court since 1989. There are now more than 2,400 such cases. And in those cases, almost 20% of the people pled guilty to crimes they never committed. Now, you can't extrapolate those immediately to the prison population as a whole. In the case of the Innocence Project, many of those cases were death penalty cases. So people were pleading guilty even though they were innocent because they didn't want to take the risk of uh, being executed. And in the National Registry, about 20% of those cases are fairly minor crimes where people would say, uh, you know, I don't really care. I'll plead guilty, even if I am innocent, because I, I'm not going to go to jail. But even if we take a much more conservative position and say it's only 5%, that's 5% of 2 million. That's 100,000 people who are presently either in prison or in jail getting ready to plead guilty who are actually innocent of the crimes they're pleading guilty to. So why did this occur? It occurred because of those very same laws that have led to mass incarceration. And they make it prohibitively risky to go to trial. So because of mandatory minimums, your client will frequently face 20, 30, 40 years that the judge has no uh, choice but to impose if there is a conviction. And so if you're a defense counsel, as I was for 15 years, your client is going to say, can't we cut a deal? And you might say to your client, well, I thought you told me you were innocent and I want to see what I can find out to corroborate your plea. And, and the, the client will then say, well, what's if I am innocent or what's my chances 
if we go to trial of being acquitted, and every defense lawyer will ethically have to say, I really don't know. It's not zero. It's not 100%, but I can't really tell you because it's not something that is scientifically ascertainable in advance. So then you go visit the prosecutor, and the prosecutor says, you say to him, my guy's innocent, and the prosecutor says, oh, you got to be kidding. Three eyewitnesses, we've got forensic evidence, your guy is dead in the water. But I agree that he is a much lower level person than some of the people in this drug conspiracy that we've indicted. So I'll allow you to plead to a five-year count in satisfaction of the indictment. So just one charge, it'll carry a mandatory minimum of five years and maybe a guideline range of six to seven years, but you have to let me know in two weeks. And you say to him, well, you know, two weeks, I mean, I'm still exploring defenses. And the guys, the prosecutor will say, well, uh, you know, that's all fine. Uh, but the, what's in it for me is to get rid of the low hanging fruit here so I can focus on the kingpins. So I'll give you three weeks, but that's the most I can do. You go back to your client and you say, I can't recommend that you plead guilty if you're innocent, but here's what the prosecutor says. And the client then says, well, maybe I am a little bit guilty. Half the time he's telling the truth, half the time he's lying, and you will never know which it is. But you go ahead and you cut the deal. And here are the statistics. Before these laws that I mentioned were introduced, 20% of all felony cases at the federal level and 25% of all felony cases at the state level went to trial. Since those laws were introduced, it's now 3% of federal cases go to trial, 2% of state cases go to trial. It is a trivial amount. It is all plea bargained and in too much too many of those cases, the person is actually innocent. I mean, it, it sounds like it makes the system a little more efficient, though, doesn't it? It takes up less courtroom time. There's, you know, you have a very busy docket. You, you can't, you can't be really serious. Let's let's send Mr. White to jail for twenty years in the interest of efficiency. The, uh, you know, that's that's uh, unfortunately the. One of the reasons I think judges are not more outspoken about this is, of course, they always have overloaded dockets. So, you know, when someone pleads guilty, there's a recent study that shows that in the state courts throughout the country, the average time of the guilty plea is 13 minutes. Most of that time is just spent telling the defendant all the rights he's giving up if he pleads guilty. So there may be a conversation between the judge and the defendant of maybe two or three minutes. And no way the judge is going to be able to determine that that person might be actually innocent. Yeah, on, a, on a more serious note, your, your characterization of how things play out, as you've seen firsthand, both as a, as a prosecutor and now as a judge, I mean, it calls to mind maybe the most famous words ever written on the subject, which was Robert Jackson's famous speech, uh, to the U.S. attorneys, to the federal prosecutors in 1940, this speech, you know, famously titled "The Federal Prosecutor," 
And in the striking line there, early on in that speech, he says, the prosecutor has more control over life, liberty, and reputation than any other person in America. His discretion is tremendous. He can have citizens investigated, and if he's that kind of person, he can have this done to the tune of public statements and veiled and unveiled intimations. And he goes on from there. Your book touches on many of the tools that that prosecutors have at, at their discretion, and the dangers inherent in, in leaving that much discretion to prosecutors. On the other hand, as I mentioned, you've been a prosecutor yourself, and so you've seen these things up close. I, I mean, my question then, and I, I don't know if it's a fair question or not, but I'll ask it anyway, is, is having been around prosecutors, what's their mindset as they, as they wield these enormous powers? What, why are they you know, wielding them in a way that, that leads to innocent people going to jail? So there are several reasons for that. First, most prosecutors are, you know, a few years out of law school. They don't have a lot of life experience. They have virtually no criminal defense experience in the overwhelming majority of cases. And so the way they look at their job, understandably, is they are upholding society and uh, morality by uh, going after evil people and putting them behind bars. And so they feel very comfortable that they're doing God's work. It's interesting, the sentencing guidelines, which uh, are now discretionary at the federal level, were passed to do away with disparities between judges and sentencing. But now we have a system because the prosecutors have such power over the sentencing through mandatory minimums, that there's huge disparities among prosecutors. So I remember very vividly when I was chief of the fraud section in the in the U.S. Attorney's Office, I had 14 assistants in my unit, and they varied all over the lot in what they would recommend for charges, but they had no control in those days over sentencing. Now those same folks are controlling the sentencing, and so there are huge secret disparities that no one knows about because of that shift in power. There's another reason, though, that prosecutors can err, and that is that uh, they're really not well trained to the infirmities of some of their evidence. For example, in 70% of the uh, exonerations by the Innocence Project, there was inaccurate eyewitness testimony. Most prosecutors have no training on the infirmities of eyewitness testimony. The National Academy of Science has done a whole big report on that, but it's not part of a prosecutor's training. And so, you know, they have a guy who says, I was an eyewitness. I wasn't involved, so I have no motive to lie. I saw that White did it, and I'll never forget his face. And the prosecutor says, yeah, perfect, great. We'll indict that guy. And the last reason which doesn't apply everywhere, but does apply in 37 states, is that in 37 states, the chief prosecutor is elected. And law and order is always good politics. Actually, this is a natural segue maybe to the next topic. In your book, you spend a couple of chapters 
thinking about and, and, and grappling with the science of the criminal justice system, the, the evidence that comes before courts, and also just, as you put it, the basic neuroscience of, of criminal justice. This was all fascinating to me. It's not something I've spent uh, really any time ever exploring before. And I'm sure there's you know, a number of people in our audience is new to them too. So what are the basic problems of, of this? I mean, it seems pretty straightforward. Eyewitness testimony, physical evidence, and so on. How can that get so complicated that problems ensue? Let me take first eyewitness testimony and then turn to other forms of forensic science. The National Academy of Science, as I mentioned, did a report on this, and I was privileged to be co-chair of that committee. And what I learned and what's reflected in that report is what science has learned about eyewitness testimony over the last 20, 30 years which is that there are frailties in perception and frailties in memory that are not obvious and yet play a very substantial role. One is the so-called racial effect. It is now very well established that persons of one race are not good at perceiving and remembering the fine facial features of someone of a different race. And this goes both ways. It's whites, seeing the features of blacks, blacks seeing the features of whites, and so forth. There's some debate over why this occurs. I think the majority view of the scientists is that's because when you're very, very young, when you're a baby and your visual equipment is first developing, you typically only see people of your own race. But whatever the reason, it's very well established and yet leads to many false identifications. A second example and a little more subtle is the tendency of memory to merge memories. So you've seen a crime and three hours later, a a policeman shows you a photo array with six or seven photos. If if one could take a um, picture of what was in your brain before you saw those photos, it would show that you only had uh, a vague perception of the criminal's face. You saw him at a distance, the lighting wasn't great, you were focused on his gun, etc. But now you pour over these six or seven photos, and because you're an honest citizen, you want to do the right thing. So you're very careful, and finally you say, well, I'm not sure, but I think it's most likely number two. And you notice on number two that number two in the photograph has a scar above his right eyebrow. By the time you visit the prosecutor three months later, let alone if the case goes to trial, uh, two years later, you those memories will have merged. And you will now say honestly, but incorrectly, I'll never forget that face because I remember seeing that scar above his right eyebrow, where in fact you didn't see it until you were looking at the photos, but those two memories merge. And that is a common human tendency, well-established in the literature, but very hard to deal with. Now, turning, if I may, and I'm sorry to gab on at such length, but turning to forensic science, in 2009, the National Academy of Science did a groundbreaking report on virtually all the major forms of forensic science. And we're talking not just fingerprinting or 
of course, DNA is in a sense uh, a form of very good forensic science, but we're talking about things like bite marks, shoe marks, hair matching, shoe print matching, etc. And what it found was that most of these forms of so-called forensic science had never been subjected to serious scientific testing. And they were really developed in police labs originally just as an investigative tool, and that's fine. But then they began to be used in court and they took on the veneer of science and yet they had no scientific testing and they were highly subjective. And the result was that there were a lot of errors made. And again, the Innocence Project in those exonerations says that in 40% of the cases, there was inaccurate forensic science. You might say 40% and 70%. That's because in some cases, there was both inaccurate eyewitness and inaccurate forensic science. But I'll give you just one example. The FBI used to do a lot of uh, hair matching through what they called scientific hair analysis. Hair would be found at the scene of the crime. They would look at it under a microscope. They would compare it with the hair of the suspect. And they had as their starting point, the assumption never proved that every individual's hair is different. And they would then opine in court, this hair matches exactly the hair of the defendant and they would either say, and I am sure to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty, that it can only have come from the defendant or some other formulation similar to that. After a whole bunch of exonerations were made in cases involving, or the underlying case that involves such evidence, the FBI, to its credit, did an analysis of all 3,000 plus cases in which its experts had given hair matching testimony. And they concluded that in 95% of those cases, the testimony was either flat wrong or at least materially overstated. 95%. So pr pretty disturbing. Very disturbing. It was a disconcerting few chapters to read. I wonder what, what that all means then for the sake of reform. I mean, surely the system has to depend on some forms of evidence. And at the same time, it also has to depend on, on some human judgment calls. One of the themes of your book is the importance of juries, for example, for, for better and for worse. And so I'm wondering, the more that our, science, our scientific tools improve, what does this mean for, for criminal justice going forward? I guess what I mean is, the more that we understand about these things, the harder it seems to me to ever find anybody guilty beyond a reasonable doubt if we're able to sort of pinpoint even very, very small risks of, of, of uh, mistake in our traditional tools and, and, and forms of evidence. Almost all of this is fixable. Yeah. The recommendation of the National Academy of Science with respect to the forensic science stuff was that there be created a National Institute of Forensic Science that would be staffed by recognized national scientists uh, who would determine in the case of any given kind of forensic science that it was either good or bad, or in many cases that it was presently inaccurate, but it could be made accurate, and here's how to go about doing it. Mm -hmm. And I still think that's a simple 
and total solution to most of the problems with forensic science. It has never gained traction, largely because most forensic science is in the hands of police labs at the local level, and they have a vested interest in maintaining that what they're doing is great and so forth. But that would be the solution there. The eyewitness testimony is a harder nut to crack because some of these things you can't fix. The tendency of, mer- of memories to merge, for example, is, is part of the human makeup. But what you could do is either alert juries to this possibility through an instruction from the judge. They're already doing that in New Jersey. Or you could have experts testify who would not testify about the case itself, but just testify about some of the factors that jurors need to consider in evaluating eyewitness testimony. The And I come back to the fact that since, unfortunately, most of the power in the present criminal justice system is in the hands of the prosecutor. To me, the most important thing is educating prosecutors about these problems so that when a policeman comes to a prosecutor and says, I've got an eyewitness, the prosecutor doesn't simply say, great, terrific. We're halfway home right there, but rather says, well, let's see how confident he was. Let's see what what steps were taken to verify his identification. Let's see what his confidence level was at the beginning of the case as opposed to later, et cetera, et cetera. Would that be improved at all uh, by prosecutors taking at least some time serving on the other side of this, uh, serving as as public defenders? So you have read my book. Uh, (laughs) So my recommendation, this, I must admit, I I think is a hard sell but I think it would still be a a great improvement, is that every prosecutor spends six months out of every three years serving as a defense counsel for indigent defendants in another district far enough away that there would be no conflicts of interest. And I think this would give the the prosecutors a much more balanced view. They'd be much more sensitive to problems in the system that they have to take a look at. And in effect, this is the system in England where barristers can be the prosecutor in one case and literally the defense counsel in the very next case. But there is a difference. Barristers don't do any of the investigation. They're given Mm -hmm. a file from the solicitor, whereas prosecutors in the United States do play an investigative role. So it would be a little more difficult to arrange, but I I think if it were arranged, it would make a huge difference in the exercise of prosecutorial discretion. Now, I have to ask, would this work in the other direction as well? Would it be a good thing for public defenders to to serve a detail in, in the prosecutor's office from time to time? Absolutely. And one beef I have with many public defender offices is they won't even hire former prosecutors. Uh, and they uh, will give various reasons for that. Oh, he can't, he's too wedded to his former colleagues, or he doesn't really understand the zealousness that defense counsel need to have. Or, But I think it's totally irrational. I think for the very reasons you mentioned, it would be great to have some former prosecutors serving as 
in legal aid offices. I myself served as a criminal defense lawyer. And to my mind, it was a, a great balancing experience and made me a much better judge. So I had just a couple more questions and I see the audience questions are coming in. Judge, one place where you say there, that there's certainly not a, a, uh, a, an, an overjealous prosecutorial tendency is with respect to the aftermath of, of the last financial crisis and, and with respect to Wall Street. Quite frankly, if I remember correctly, of all the essays you published in the run-up to this book, I think that one was probably the most widely read and the most controversial because you certainly didn't mince words on your view of, of the, 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 as you saw, the, the dearth of prosecution of, of Wall Street executives in the aftermath of that crisis. So why don't you explain uh, why this is an example of prosecutors doing uh, too little rather than too much? Yes. And again, because of my background as chief of the fraud unit in the U.S. Attorney's Office is close to my heart, the, for decades, the position of the Department of Justice, and for that matter, most state prosecutors' offices, was that if a big financial fraud or other financial crime had occurred, you would try to see who was the highest level person who had actually intentionally participated in that criminal scheme and go after that person. And you would do it the same way you do drug cases, mob cases, and so forth. You would start with a lower level guy who usually you had dead in the water, and then you would flip him and go up the ranks as best you can and see what you could find. And it was through that approach, for example, that the CEOs of WorldCom, the CEOs of Enron, the top people in the savings and loan crisis and so forth were all successfully prosecuted. Beginning around, oh, 2006 or so, the Department of Justice decided that they didn't have the resources anymore to do this. They were spending a lot of time, unquote, totally understandably, on anti-terrorism and things like that, and no one could quarrel with that. But the result was they felt they had to have a more, a, a less manpower-intensive way of going after these cases, and so, under federal law, though not in all states, but under federal law, a corporation is liable for, uh, is criminally liable for even the crimes committed by its lowest level employees if they're done within the scope of their employment. And so that made it very easy. What they would do is they would call in the corporation and they would say, we know you're guilty, and, but we'll settle up for you with a fine. Of course, the fine came out of the pockets of the shareholders, who usually had nothing to do with the crime. And also, we'll institute some compliance measures so it won't happen again. Although the great study of that by Professor Brandon Garrett at Duke Law School indicates that, in fact, many, many times there was recidivism and the compliance measures were no more than window dressing. Um, and this became the norm. It's been the norm through both Democratic and Republican administrations right up to the present, although I'm, I'm hopeful that the current administration might reconsider this. To my mind, to get really basic, it's sort of immoral. And I say that because it's not the corporation that committed these crimes. It was individual human beings. Sometimes it was just low level. Sometimes it was high level. 
those are the people who should be brought to justice. And to say, well, if you're high enough up, and so it'll take us three years to find out whether you're culpable or not, we're just not going to spend the person power on that. Uh, we'll take a billion dollar fine from your corporation and let the shareholders pay. To me, that is wrong, deeply wrong. So that's why I wrote that article, and that's the way I still feel. There was some public pressure towards the Obama and the Obama administration to change this and go back to the earlier prosecution of individuals. And Sally Yates, who was then deputy attorney general, issued a memorandum to that effect. And I think that was, frankly, I'm a big fan of Sally Yates, but I think it was partly a response to political pressure that the public itself was being upset by the failure to prosecute any high-level executive in crimes that involved huge amounts of pain and suffering, economic pain and suffering to millions of people in connection with the end of the, the uh, bubble that led to the Great Recession. So, but that came out just a few months before the election. The Trump administration reverted to what, in all fairness, was the policy under the Obama administration previously. And that's where it stayed until now, though being by nature an optimist, I have some hopes that it will now be reconsidered. I noticed your book is blurred by Jesse Isinger, who quite possibly might be the most vocal sort of public advocate on these issues for years at ProPublica and elsewhere. I have two questions about this part of your book, and I'll start with a more specific one. You mentioned the Enron prosecution, and there were others in the early 2000s from the earlier sort of accounting scandals and so on. There was Enron, there was Arthur Anderson. There's one more that I'm, I'm forgetting, if maybe it was WorldCom. Well, WorldCom, but also Tyco, Tyco Michael, yeah. Michael Milken. You can, the list yeah. is long. But the Supreme Court pushed back pretty hard in a couple of cases, didn't it? There was the Arthur Anderson case and the, the Enron case where they, they thought that the prosecutors went too far with the definition of honest services fraud. I might be butchering all of this. Yeah. I haven't thought about criminal law in a while, but I guess that's my specific question is, didn't the Supreme Court send a signal that, that prosecutors should hold their fire a little bit? What in the, the Arthur Anderson case, which obviously had an impact on the Department of Justice, but wrongly, in my view, was that the Supreme Court felt that the charge given to the jury in the case of Arthur Anderson, which grew out of the Enron situation, was went too far. And so they sent it back for a new trial. But my point is it had nothing to do with the individuals. Mr. Skilling still went to prison. The, 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 this might have suggested the Department of Justice that there's another problem with going after corporations that maybe the standards aren't as tight as they should be, but had nothing to do with going after the individuals. So I view it as evidence from my point of view, not, not the reverse. Yeah. I mean, maybe the bigger question, I guess, is, is this. Surely the fi last financial crisis was ruinous for a lot of people. It destroyed a lot of people's livelihoods. It did a lot of damage to our economy. And people in, in really high positions, certainly, as you point out, they weren't punished for it. But I suppose it's one thing to say that these people did things that were bad or that hurt others or that they led institutions that, that whose, whose activities hurt others. But I mean, it is quite another thing to say that they were specifically guilty of crimes and not just people within the company, but people going 
all the way up to, to the, the heads of, of these, these banks and other institutions. I mean, anytime that there's a, a, a crisis, I mean, there is a risk of populist overreach and going too far. And how, how can we be sure that, that the, 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 the sort of the public's dissatisfaction with the, the lack of prosecutions is just sort of misguided? And that, and that what, the reason why people weren't prosecuted is that people weren't guilty of specific crimes under existing federal law. Yeah. So, of course, there is always the danger in any controversial area of scapegoating, not just in this area, but the law is, and this law goes back literally 500 years, that you cannot be convicted of a fraud, a criminal fraud, unless you had the specific intent to defraud someone. And I do disagree with some people such as Elizabeth Warren, who want to water that down, I think that, again, accords with my basic views of the morality of the situation. If someone did not have an intent to defraud, then they shouldn't be criminally prosecuted for fraud. But in many, many of these cases, going back to the cases I handled when when I was a prosecutor, the evidence of was strong and involving the CEO or the other high-level ex- executive personally. Many, many cases, that person was told specifically about the frauds going on, not once, but twice, three times, four times, and said, in effect, well, we're not going to worry about that or something like that. That's so-called willful disregard. And today, in cases that I see in my court involving lower level people, uh, but I think it's equally true of uh, higher level people, you have the further advantage of emails, which often reveal exactly what was on the mind of the per executive involved. So I, the danger of scapegoating is always one that people have to be very careful about and hear no less than in other areas. But that the evidence exists in many of these cases, I think, is very likely. Just one last question before we get to the audience questions. You dedicate a chapter to the death penalty. You ask, uh, will the death penalty ever die? Uh, the death penalty is a longstanding feature in American criminal justice with a, the, a brief interregnum when the Supreme Court casts some real doubt on it. It's, I, I, I don't know the, the statistics on, on, on current trends. I know that some states are, I think, are doing it more than they used to. The federal government was briefly doing it more than it used to. But why should the death penalty go away? Why isn't there a place for it in our system? I was originally in favor of the death penalty. And I changed my mind because, again, of the Innocence Project, where they found that dozens, now hundreds of people who had been sentenced to death were actually innocent. And I thought, gee, if you're actually innocent and eventually can prove that, maybe through DNA that wasn't in use when you were convicted or through other science that is still just developing, what good is it if you've been killed? So in 2002, I declared the federal death penalty unconstitutional on that ground, not getting into the debate whether it's a good deterrent or a bad deterrent, although there is a lot of debate about that, and not getting into the debate about whether it's racially invidious. So there's a lot of debate about that. But to me, it was much more simple. 
how can we have, how can we live with ourselves if we send uh, totally innocent people to their death, state-sponsored execution? Now, I knew the Court of Appeals was not probably ready for that, so I was reversed. I think I, I usually say in a nanosecond, but maybe it was two. But I think I was right. And I also think public opinion is coming around to that view. And most recently, the state of Virginia outlawed the death penalty. And I thought that was a real sign of how attitudes are changing. If people want to read uh, Judge Rakoff's opinion on the subject, he said it was 2002. The case is called United States versus Quinones. And, and reading this chapter called to mind one of the more famous articles in the history of law, law reviews is Innocence Irrelevant by Judge Henry Friendly, which is a classic on the subject. Judge, just one sort of nitpick on, on this. Along the way in your, 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 your discussion of the death penalty, you point out, you, you quote Justice Breyer in the case of Glossop versus Gross, Gross saying that the death penalty is subject to, quote, unconscionably long delays in the process. But it seems to me there's a paradox there, right? We want to have more process in order to ensure that innocent people are screened out, but adding those protections is going to delay the process in general. So how do we strike the right balance between those two uh, considerations, short of, of just outright abolition of the death penalty? For the reasons I've previously mentioned, I think very close scrutiny at many levels of appeal of death penalties that have been imposed is perfectly appropriate and necessary. The attempt by Congress to shorten this was a law passed in the Clinton administration called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. And that law has had many bad consequences. It's really eliminated habeas relief in a huge number of situations. So even if you thought those delays were a bad thing, you should be careful about how you go about trying to cure it because the uh, solution may be worse than the problem. Well, thanks to everybody who submitted questions so far. Thanks for your patience. And the first question I'll get to is from Rachel Ong. And she asks, Judge Rakoff mentions one big cause for reduction in crime is the prevalence of surveillance and security cameras as, as crime deterrence. Why aren't minimum sentencing laws also considered deterrents for potential crimes and therefore a larger factor in the reduced crime rates? We've talked a little bit about the mandatory minimums, but Judge, isn't this one of the reasons why we have we have safer a safer country now is because of those uh, minimums? So I mean, minimums? the the you know this is in theory a empirical question, and there have been many attempts to answer that question. And as I said, the results are all over the lot. But to my mind, the best study was the one done by the Brennan Center, which I refer to at some length in my uh, book, even though there again, the none of this is perfect. And But what the Brennan Center determined was that mandatory minimums played only a very modest role in the reduction of crime. By contrast, there were great improvements in the last quarter of the 20th century in police techniques. And you know, a lot of police went back to uh, walking the beats as opposed to staying in their cars. And virtually all these studies, both liberal and conservative, say that that had a big effect. So 
There are a lot of factors involved, but most of the studies do not suggest that mandatory minimums were a significant factor. Well, thanks, Judge, and thanks, Rachel, for your question. Well, the next question comes from AEI's own Nicole Penn. She asks, Judge, do you think the American criminal justice system is well-equipped to handle cases regarding sexual assault? If so, what does our system do well in these cases? And, and if not, how should the system be reformed in order to handle this especially sensitive type of crime? I, I need to have a caveat here, which is that most of those cases are in state courts, not in federal courts, but they do come in to my court in a way that I think is perhaps instructive. In many, many cases where a spouse is assaulted, most usually a woman, but occasionally a man, and that person calls 911 and the police come, and then because of the unfortunate dynamics of the psychology of the relationship, the uh, victim says to the prosecutor a week later, I don't want to press charges. And most DA's office will then drop the case. I think that's unfortunate. And I'll tell you how I know about that indirectly, because in some cases, the person who was committing the abuse is on federal probation, what we call supervised release. And so the report comes to me, and I almost always insist that those cases go forward because in many, many of those cases, there is independent evidence, even without the testimony of the victim, most commonly hospital evidence. So you will have, in, as I've had in a number of these cases, photographs taken at the hospital of this terribly abused and bruised woman. And there's, you know, the, the, there's no way to explain that except through that she was beaten up. And so I can still send the guy to jail for a violation of supervised release. But I think the broader solution is that DA's offices have to be more conscious that there is other kinds of evidence out there. Now, of course, there is this important distinction. They have to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. A violation of supervised release is only by a preponderance of the evidence. So that's a big difference. But I nevertheless think I, when I, it's still etched in my mind, some of these photographs. And all you had to do was look at them and you knew that this woman was being horribly abused. So that's my suggestion there. Judge, near the end of your book, you have you, you end on a hopeful case for reform, putting your faith in the American people to, to, to move forward with reforms. I have to admit, after much of what's earlier in the book, I wonder if that's maybe the triumph of hope over experience after all the political will over the previous decades in favor of ratcheting up mandatory minimums, prosecutors, and even judges who, who run for election of the states campaigning as being hard on, on crime. But it does seem in our present political environment, as one of the questioners points out, that criminal justice reform does seem to be attracting increasingly bipartisan support. Obviously, your book I'm surely is, is intended, among other things, to help reinforce the, the changing public dialogue. But why do you suppose public opinion seem, is changing on these things now? I think public opinion is changing for three reasons. First, 
is people are becoming ever more aware of the evils of mass incarceration, the problems with insufficient prosecution of spousal abuse, to take that other kind of example, that there are lots of problems with our criminal justice system that people now are cognizant of in a way that they weren't 15, 20 years ago. So they are open to change. And a good evidence of that was something called the First Step Act, which was passed in the early years of the Trump administration that, that reduced a few of the mandatory minimums that were in place. It was only a modest reform, but it had bipartisan support and was signed by the president. So it shows that this can happen. The other reason, though, this may, may, as you say, reflect faith over experience. I do have tremendous faith in the American people. In my lifetime, I have seen so many improvements in so many areas. We have huge racial problems today, but they are nothing compared to the racial problems we had in the 50s and 60s when I was growing up. We've made tremendous progress there. And we've made it because the American people, when all is said and done, are people of goodwill and do want to be fair. So my joke about that is, yes, as an American, I'm a perennial optimist, but as a Jew, I'm a perennial pessimist. But here, I think the broader experience, to use your term, the long-term experience is that Americans can and do rise to the occasion and want to do what's right and fair and can do so in this area once they understand the problems that exist. Now, Judge, as, I, as I've mentioned a few times throughout the conversation, my background isn't in criminal law. As it happens, I'm my, my background is in administrative law. And so I was really sort of pleasantly surprised to get almost 200 pages into the book and stumble across a brief discussion of Chevron deference. We don't need to, that, that's, a, that's an entirely different podcast. But it, it, you point out, you, you, you highlight Chevron deference as, a, as a, another example of a deferential mindset of judges that sometimes is too deferential towards the executive branch and those who wield government power. Interestingly, one of our questions from the audience sort of points in the other direction. The question is this. Some political analysts are concerned about the rise in judicial supremacy, worrying that unelected judges can strike down lawfully passed statutes and legislation. Uh, is that, I, maybe I, I'd focus those two points together then of what really is the greater danger in our system right now? Is it judges doing too little or isn't it perhaps judges doing too much, especially if that too much spurs a backlash from, from Congress and from the political system? In the chapters of the book that address this, the point that I'm trying to make is that historically the judges have been not shy about applying checks, constitutional checks to the legislature, but have been much more shy about applying constitutional checks to the executive. One reason I don't think Chevron is a good decision, and now I'll never be invited to my liberal friends' dinners anymore. But the one reason I don't think it is because I think it's the judges who should be deciding what the law is, not administrative agencies who are ultimately an arm of the executive. I think Supreme Court and the other courts have not been shy about exercising their power 
with respect to legislation. And one can make the argument that they may have gone too far in that respect. I don't really have a strong feeling one way or the other about that. But I think the evidence is considerable that they have ducked issued cases of executive abuse and been doing so since the start of the Supreme Court. And the reason for that, I think, ultimately is because judges are dependent on the executive to enforce their decisions. And so they don't want to be too much at odds. But I think it is inconsistent with the constitutional notion that the checks and balances of each branch should include checks and balances towards the executive. Now, that's something that Hamilton famously worried about in in the Federalist Papers, the fact that the judiciary might be overpowered or overawed or influenced by the the political branches of government. I just I was struck by your inclusion of of that brief discussion in, in a book on criminal law. So often now, it seems to me, administrative law and criminal law are, are pretty stovepipe. There's some scholars, some really good scholars who focus on both. But I just thought it was very interesting that you drew the connection. And it reminded me that, you know, some of the greatest minds on, on administration were also scholars of policing. I mean, James Q. Wilson, who wrote on both bureaucracy and, and before that on policing, even one of the founding fathers of administrative law, Kenneth Culp Davis wrote, wrote books on policing. So that's just a digression because I just I, I have to sneak administrative law into basically all my conversations. Um, but but Judge, so, um, so I, I, look for, I look forward to your future book on uh, criminal law. Yeah. One last question from the audience, Judge, and then one last one from me. The question from the audience is this. What advice do you have for young lawyers who hope to advance the types of reforms that you advocate in your book? Uh, ending mass incarceration, promoting uh, the protection of innocence in the system, preventing people, innocent people from pleading guilty, and just making the criminal system more just as you see it. What's your advice? uh, Specifically for the lawyers who are are playing their own role in the system. Right, right. So the, if you look around the world, you'll see that it is often the lawyers who are in the forefront of protecting civil liberties, of asserting the need for democracy. One of my heroes is Gandhi, and people forget that he was a very good lawyer before he rose to his you know, political aspirations. So I guess my advice to young lawyers is you have a broad role to play in society and history demonstrates that you are a critical cog in progress in these areas. So exercise that power and don't limit uh, yourself to that interesting little technical issue involving the federal rules of civil procedure that has kept you up to midnight, spend another hour till 1 a.m. and work on these bigger issues. And, and my last question, Judge, is it, it, it sort of brings us back to the beginning. I pointed out at the outset of our conversation that in addition to your now 25 years on the bench, you've been a, a prosecutor, you've been a, an old defense attorney. And I'm just curious, are there any sort of issues that we've discussed that you see differently now as a judge than you did as a prosecutor? Maybe another way to put it based on the last question is if you could give advice now to your own self as a, as a younger prosecutor, you know, what advice would that be? So when you're young, you're always sure of your views. And 
the lesson that I should have learned in law school but didn't is that there are many times important things to be said for both sides of a debate. And a lot of law school was about that because you were asked to defend positions that you didn't necessarily believe and all like that. But I looked at it too much as, oh, this is just learning the, the tools of the trade and was not as conscious as I now am to the fact that for every black and white issue, there are a thousand that are gray and that you need to think about both sides of an issue before you fly off the handle. Well, thanks, Judge, for your time with us today and all of your advice. Just one last thing before we go, I want to do a little marketing. First, for AEI, please stay tuned to our website for upcoming events. And also, this morning, we hosted two panel discussions looking at policy developments in the first 100 days of the Biden administration, both domestic policy and foreign policy. If you missed those live discussions, you'll be able to find them uh, on video on our website eventually, and please look for them. And then finally, just, uh, I suppose, an advertisement for the book we've been discussing today, uh, Judge Rakoff's book. I'll hold it up since he hasn't yet. The book is titled <laughs> Why the Innocent Plead Guilty and the Guilty Go Free and Other Paradoxes of Our Broken Legal System. I can say firsthand, this is this book, like the essays that preceded it, I've, I came to these issues from a very different perspective, and it's a challenging book and at times a fun book to read, but definitely a, a, a very thorough analysis of the state of the criminal justice system. And so I'd encourage everybody, whether you, you agree or disagree with Judge Rakoff's positions today, to please look for this book. Judge, thanks for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. And I guess that brings this conversation to an end. As I mentioned, please keep an eye on AEI's website for upcoming events. Thank you. 